Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Jennifer Workman. I'm an assistant public defender, and I represent the appellant, Gatowan Brown. Your Honors, Mr. Brown was subjected to a humiliating, unnecessary, and overly invasive search of his anal cavity to retrieve the evidence of a low-level drug crime. We ask this court to hold that that search violated the federal and state constitutional prohibitions against unreasonable searches, and also hold that suppression is the appropriate remedy here. Your Honors, both parties agree that the Winston versus Lee case provides the best framework for analyzing this issue. What I'd like to note from the outset here is that none of these factors overwhelmingly favor the state, whereas several of them do overwhelmingly favor Mr. Brown. Those factors include the second factor, which is the extent of the intrusion upon the individual's dignitary interests and his bodily privacy. Obviously, that factor overwhelmingly favors Mr. Brown because this could not be a more demeaning, humiliating, terrible search. Counsel, what, does, what relevance is there, if any, to the, you started out your remarks talking about the charge being a low-level drug offense. What difference does the level or type of charge make to our analysis? That is a circumstance that your honors can consider as part of the third factor, the community's interest in the prosecution. The level of the offense is something that this court can consider when determining whether the community really needed to uh, uh, undertake this procedure to get the evidence. Now, what I want to focus on with that factor is that that factor really focuses on the community's need to do this procedure. Did the community absolutely need to do this anoscopy in order to get the drug evidence here? But counsel, isn't it accurate, or tell me if I'm not accurate, that um, there, the defendant was given four different choices as to how to um, have that come out of his system? He was given choices, less invasive options, Your Honor, and he did not uh, answer the questions. The uh, obligation to cooperate in any type of way with that investigation is not on Mr. Brown. There is no duty to cooperate to help them retrieve the drugs from his body. The state can give you no authority for that duty, and in fact, no such duty exists. If there were such a duty here, then we would have no need for the Fifth Amendment which and the state concomitant resolution, which protects people against cooperating, being forced to cooperate, cooperate with police investigations. And we would have no need for the Winston Wayne factors in this case, because those, ca those factors take into account all of the circumstances that a person who is not cooperating would have to undergo in order for the police to act lawfully. What's the That's status, counsel, of the law? Uh, in, I mean, Winston is, of course, uh, as these things go, relatively uh, old case. I'm just wondering, what's the status of the law among the circuits, and does it favor one side or the other? Is there a particularly useful case that we should look at, those kinds of things? The most particularly useful case for, this, uh, for your honors is the Gray case, which we have cited in our brief. And that is a case from 2012. It is probably the most recent case that you're going to come across. It is also the most factually similar to this case. 
And what happened in Gray is that there was a confidential informant used to purchase drugs from Mr. Gray. There was a confidential informant used here. Mr. Gray was arrested for selling drugs. Mr. Brown was arrested for selling drugs. A strip search was performed by police at the jail of Mr. Gray. A strip search was conducted here. The police uh, determined that there were packaged drugs that were, um, Mr. Gray was hiding in his rectum. Same here. They t got a warrant. They took him to the hospital, Mr. Gray. And Mr. Gray did not cooperate, did not want to uh, consent to any of the less invasive options that they presented to him. And they, uh, medical staff at the hospital performed a protoscopy, which for our purposes is almost identical to an anoscopy. Counsel in Gray, yes, a strip search was performed, but isn't there a difference between the result of the strip search there and the result of the strip search here? N no, I mean, they Your didn't Honor. see a plastic bag. They did, Your Honor, in uh, Gray see a string which indicated that there was some type of packaging that Mr. Gray was hiding in his rectum. Now, here they did see an edge of plastic uh, uh, baggie, which again would indicate that there was packaging. When we have the presence of packaging, the police really need to understand that they have to back off because at that point they should know that the chances of a medical overdose are significantly lowered. And, that, and when we see the cases, we can almost divide them up between whether they package it, the drugs were packaged or whether they were not packaged. And I encourage your, your honors to look Counsel, at that. what do you mean by the police should back off? What do you mean? What do you mean? What we're looking at here is that Mr. Brown was not suffering any signs of an overdose and he was not in a, in needing medical intervention to save his life because of the drugs themselves. So at that point, there is no need for the police to take him to the hospital and do an immediate emergency search because he's not, he's not in any medical emergency at that point. What, what we're so, looking at counsel, here- Counsel, what are- what are the police supposed to do when they see some, they arrest somebody and they see the person um, putting drugs, they see evidence that they're putting drugs uh, up their rear end. Um, and, you know, is your argument that they're supposed to monitor these people until, but, you know, when I think about that, the, the dignitary concerns of that seem almost as great as having a doctor you know, do it in the hospital. I, I agree that there are, are dignitary concerns. It is just almost as invasive to ask someone in the presence of police to spread themselves, expose their most private area of their body and take out the drugs themselves. That is not a less invasive option. But your honors, what we have here is we have police prioritizing their time over a fundamental privacy right, and we cannot stand for that. What we, what we need to focus on here is that Mr. Brown was not in, in, me, in a medical emergency. The police could but wait. But counsel, you know, I'm, I'm very um, troubled by the, the, the invasiveness of this, but how are, it just seems to me the practicalities of, I mean, you could be waiting for days. Um, how would you know if this bag got breached and there's, you know, an intense, I mean, there are lots of um, problems with waiting. 
the hospitals and the jails are fully equipped and capable of taking care of these types of situations, monitoring the person's health, if they start to show a sign of overdose, seizures, that kind of thing, then at that point, our position would be that they do need to intervene to save their life. But as long as they are and, not and showing- typically, wouldn't it be up to the person to consent whether they're gonna get medical treatment or not? I mean, if the argument is it's to protect the person's life, don't we usually look to the person's consent? Your honors, I, I'm sure at that point that that may be true, that we ask for consent for people, but if- but, Well, I guess the point I'm making is before we would have the state intervene to take something out, shouldn't it be up to the defendant to decide whether they need that medical treatment uh, or not? And certainly that's our argument here, that, we need, that the defendant should be able to consent, and if he does not consent, then you need to step back and wait. And I, I had a couple other questions. So the, 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 the judge that issued the warrant, Yes. Did she know any information about any medical emergency that was being faced? It does not appear from the record that she knew anything about the medical. She did not know what medical procedures could have been performed on Mr. Brown. The police did not inform her of the state of his uh, medical emergency, his medical state at the time. They also did not tell her um, that they were looking around for different doctors to perform this e examination. All they told her was the that counsel, one is doctor it, is, it, is it fair to say that they didn't tell her or that it's just not in the record? It, it appears to me, I think we can make the conclusion from what's in the record that they did not tell her. And, and what's that based on? That's based on uh, the testimony that came out at the Rasmussen hearing, the warrant itself, the uh, supporting application of the warrant. The supporting application has none of that information in it. Correct, but there is occasions where officers, I mean, the district court judge is supposed to add what was told them in addition to, but it, I don't think we can assume that the judge didn't know. The officer, when he testified at the Rasmussen hearing, testified about what information he told the judge. And when he testified about that, there was nothing in there about the medical emergency or the uh, procedures that could have been performed. But they did go back to the same judge who signed the original Correct. warrant. Yes, yes, Your Honor. And so just as a follow-up, so if the, if the judge was, didn't really know that there was what any medical emergency, what the procedures could be, and I also, my understanding is they also, there was no discussion of the potential dissipation of Correct. the drugs. Correct. So I, I guess the, some of that goes to the question, the state makes this argument that the issuance of the warrant is kind of a plus factor in the Winston analysis. Can you address that a little bit? The issuance of a warrant is not a dispositive factor, Your Honor, and we need to be very clear about that. Every court that has had a warrant in these situations before it has not said, oh, there was a warrant, that's it, we're done. Every court has continued to consider all of the factors from Winston and has considered the warrant as merely one additional factor and not a superseding factor, not a the greatest factor, but an equal factor along with the other factors. And, well, why, and why is that? This is the thing I've been struggling with a little bit because it seems like the reasonableness inquiry on the warrant is whether it was reasonable for the officers to believe they had probable cause, which seems like a different question than whether it's reasonable to do this particular procedure. And here there was no analysis by the judge issuing the warrant that this particular procedure was reasonable in this context. 
Would that be? That's, that is correct. I, what we're getting here is that even uh, under, our, the basis of our argument is even where you can have a warrant, it can still be illegal. It can still be rashly issued. And that's what occurred here. And perhaps we've, we advocate, and the Winston court advocated for an adversarial hearing. Perhaps it's not possible to hold a, an adversarial hearing before the issuance of the warrant. But certainly, that hearing needs to be held at least afterwards. And not to defer blindly to that warrant, but to go back and make sure that the steps were checked off and that this, this warrant was properly issued. That, was that done here with the Rasmussen hearing? I, I would agree that the Rasmussen hearing was like an adversarial hearing, yes, Your Honor. Counsel, just help, help me understand, what was the state of the record, or what is the state of the record relative to any medical distress? There was no client. medical distress. Uh, both doctors testified that Mr. Brown was under no medical distress, showed no sign of overdose. And does the record help us um, understand how quickly um, such an emergency would have overtaken your client had there been such an emergency? There is very limited information in the record about that. Um, not a lot of testimony from the doctors themselves. Uh, one of the police officers testified that he has seen people go through overdose before but did not give a time period. Your well, Honors, at the time of the procedure, counsel, Nobody knew whether the plastic bag was intact or had been breached, is that right? That's correct, but Mr. Brown was showing no signs of an overdose to suggest that the, the plastic bag had been breached. Your Honors, when we consider this, it, it really comes down to, is this person showing any signs of an overdose so that they need me medical emergency intervention? If they're not, let nature take its course that this person has not consented to any of the invasive well, options. Well, it's not quite exactly nature, but what, what weight, if any, are we to give to your client's apparent refusal to, to uh, swallow the go lightly, which I don't know if it would have gone lightly or not, but um, <laughs> it would have been more natural than the procedure that was ultimately used. Go lightly and a laxative those are still invasive procedures. And if Mr. Brown says no to those and he does not consent to them, then yes, hospitals, police, they need to wait. They well, what, have- what's, what's invasive? I mean, I, I guess requiring or asking or getting the consent of somebody to drink something, I suppose it's a liquid going down inside the body, but it that's, that's consider, considerably less invasive. It, it causes cramping, it is very uncomfortable, and frankly, where my client does not have to consent or cooperate with that, he doesn't have to swallow that. Did, did he have an obligation not to uh, stick the drugs up his rectum? Your Honor, there, this is a, a privacy issue, and this is what this comes I'm, I'm down. asking before we get to the, the warrant, um, was it lawful for him to take this plastic bag and attempt to conceal, hide it from the police? Apparently it was, Your Honor, because he was not charged with any type of concealing. No, I, I know or, he wasn't charged with it. I'm asking you as a matter of law. I, I know of no charge that could be charged against Mr. Brown or anyone else in his circumstances to criminally charge him for 
hiding that uh, drugs in his rectum. And I've seen many a case from across the country and I've never seen anyone who was charged criminally for doing that act. How about interfering with the administration of justice? Perhaps, but Your Honor, there are several elements there that are a little shaky with this. Which ones? Your Honor, I'm not familiar with the, the statute. I'd have to look through it specifically, but I think that there might be a specific intent or a general intent problem there. Well, it, it, Minnesota Statute 609.50 Subdivision 1 criminalizes the intentional obstruction, hindering, or prevention of the lawful execution of any legal process. So, um, but you're not, you're not familiar with that? Your Honor, I'm, I'm not familiar with that statute off the top of my head. What I can tell you is, is that I think that question in itself is a red herring. It distracts us from what we're really here for, and that's that there's a fundamental privacy interest here. Regardless of whether he put it up there or somebody else did, that doesn't matter how it got there. What matters is that it is I, there. The reason I was asking about it was in Winston, of course, there was a bullet in the shoulder. Right. And obviously the, uh, the person with the bullet in the shoulder didn't put it there. This case, I'm trying to figure out how the Winston factors are or are not affected by, the, by his intentional um, decision to locate the drugs within his body. They have no effect. It, this, the, the intentional decision to place the drugs in his body has no effect upon the Winston factors. Other courts who have dealt with this exact situation have found that has no effect, Your Honor. And I would point you Count to the Gray case, for example, for that. Counsel, on this same point, um, Winston had a footnote nine that says somewhat different issues would be raised if the use of a general anesthetic became necessary because of the patient's refusal to cooperate. What do you think that means? I think that's referring to more of a general surgery, which might carry more risks, but certainly here, Mr. Brown was, uh, he had to have IV sedation, and he was moved to a medical procedure room where this, where specialized equipment was used to retrieve the drugs from his body. I think in that situation, even if it wasn't general anesthesia, it is still uh, such an invasive, overly intrusive process where someone, where they have the ability to wait. They have the waterless toilets. They have the ability to monitor him. Every jail, every hospital has that ab ability, and it does go on. So th this is something that we don't need to get distracted by, well, what if he had more anesthesia? What if he had less? What we're looking at here is somebody who did not want a medical procedure per uh, performed on his body, and yet the police did it anyway because they just didn't want to wait. They put their time over Mr. Brown's fundamental privacy rights. And I cannot stress that enough, how wrong that is. And this court needs to say, stop. We have rights, we have a constitution that says that that cannot go on. And that's what we're holding here. It's a very common sense holding. I think if you approach anyone on the street with these facts and tell them about it, they'd say, I don't want the police going in my body. I don't care what I've put up there. And that's a, that reaction, that very authentic reaction, is what is embodied in our privacy rights in the Constitution. And that's why we cannot stand for what happened here. Well, your assessment of the popular mood 
may or may not be right, but I, why wouldn't uh, most people on the street say, why do why do you put the drugs up there in the first place? That's but obstructing justice. That's it's concealing evidence. Most people do not understand the the finer points of the law. It's true, Your Honor. But what we understand as trained lawyers and uh, practitioners of the law is that the, the Constitution itself says that our fundamental privacy rights outweigh... Counsel, one of the problems here, it seems to me, is um, <clears throat> you're asking this. Now, maybe this is a question that it's up to the defendant, but you're asking... Uh, the. You, we're putting, the, we're putting this patient in a position where uh, potentially he's gambling with his life. I mean, the reality is we're all, we're all operating on the assumption that, well, there's no signs of an overdose. But from a medical standpoint, um, the, nobody knows the precise substance that's involved. If that's fentanyl as opposed to some other kind of substance, a breach in that bag probably kills him, may kill him quickly. Uh, now, I'm not a doctor, but just judging from what little we know about these drugs and the way in which it lands here, it seems to me that's a different, uh, that, that becomes a very different set of circumstances. How are we to deal with that from the standpoint of the, um, uh, the, you know, the potential defendant, the defendant's potential medical condition. Your Honor, I think it's completely... In, in other words, what, I, what I'm suggesting is uh, you're minimizing the risk, and the risk, in fact, may be substantially greater than um, we might have thought five or ten years ago. What do we do about that, if anything? I don't think I'm minimizing the risk. I'm putting forward the facts of this case, which was that there was not a, any sign of a medical overdose. I Counsel, who's responsible for the defendant's um, uh, health when he is in custody? That would be the uh, the police department as, as well as the defendant himself. Um, Your Honors, I don't think it is wrong or uh, against our position to hold that you need to wait until uh, there's either a natural elimination or if there is a sign of an overdose, you can intervene. What we're Unless, of course, the sign of an overdose is, cotermi is, is uh, coterminous with the death of the patient. I mean, that, that's the thing that I'm, that I'm worrying about here, um, which is, you know, the presumption of a bunch of lawyers in this room that uh, there's no medical risk here until a sign of an overdose occurs. Well, is the only evidence in this room the fact of the doctor's testimony, not the lawyer's? There, that's correct, and the doctor's testimony was not uh, clear on what the risk of death is. It was not clear on what the timing is, Your Honor. So unfortunately, we do not have that in the record. Well, there is testimony that they didn't see any signs. And they didn't that want, is, aren't those the factual findings of the district court? That is correct. That is correct, Your Honor. What we have here, and sticking to our record, it is true that we don't have any signs of an overdose. He was fine. They could have waited. What about the dissipation um, of the evidence? Was there any testimony, is there any testimony in the record that, boy, if we don't get this evidence out of the body within the next two hours or something, it's, it, it's going to dissipate. Was there, was there anything like that? There um, was no testimony regarding that. And I think probably there was no testimony regarding that because they knew it was packaged, Your Honor. 
and the chances of that are, are very low when there's packaging. But, but I mean, that could be relevant, right, in, 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 the, in this sort of <clears throat> grand scheme of weighing the reasonableness of what happened here. If, in fact, the government proved, if we don't get this out in the next 30 minutes, it's going to be gone. I think that actually goes to, again, back to the packaging question, the dissipation. And uh, dissipation seems to go hand in hand with signs of an overdose. And at that point, it seems that every court is on board with intervention, not only to save the person's life, but also to save the evidence. Your honors, Counsel, I just want it's, to- it's black letter law that um, a search made to a warrant is presumptively reasonable. That's and correct. we yes. give, give deference to district court judges in terms of their judgment issuing a warrant. Right. Do you, does your client, Mr. Brown, carry the burden on this three-part Winston analysis? And if so, how does that affect the case? Well, our, obviously our standard of review here is that your honors will review de novo the uh, legal conclusions. And uh, we do not believe that there were any clearly erroneous findings in the facts of the district court. Um, so you're asking us to take the facts as the district court found right. them? Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Your Honors, I just want to briefly address the good faith exception and the remedy that the state is seeking here. The state is asking for this court to adopt a good faith exception that is a vast expansion upon Leon, a good faith exception that has not even been recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court itself. And we ask this court to reject that assertion. The adoption of an entirely new exception not recognized by this court before, not recognized in the very lim limited exception adopted in Lindquist would run against everything that this court has said before. And this court, while it must follow the substantive uh, holdings and findings of the US Supreme Court, this court gets to choose the remedies. This court gets to say, we're not going to adopt a good faith exception. This type of case calls for suppression. And I would just also like to address the harm that we are seeking to prevent in this type of case, the wrongdoing by the police. What we have here are police officers who are prioritizing their time over fundamental rights and so we're seeking to prevent that, but we're also preventing them from doctor shopping, from saying, oh gosh, I'm so mad at this, this doctor for telling me that I don't get to do what I wanna do, and I'm gonna go find somebody who will. And that's what happened here. We can't stand for that, and that calls for suppression in this case. Is that bad faith, the, do the alleged doctor shopping? That in, that's our, our position, Your Honor. So that's you, even, why, even if the good faith exception would apply, you would argue that it doesn't apply correct. here? Okay. Correct, Your Honor. <clears throat> Your Honors, I have no other points I'd like to make. Are there any other questions? I think we're good, Counsel. Thank you have you, five Honors. minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Schmidt. May it please the court, counsel, John Schmidt, assistant Hennepin County attorney on behalf of the state of Minnesota. This court should adopt the Winston versus Lee test articulated by the United States Supreme Court for analyzing a search into a person's body. 
when analyzing those factors, this court should affirm the district court and the Court of Appeals' well-reasoned analysis. The United States Supreme Court declared that the good, the Winston versus Lee tests is a delicate balance that admits of few categorical answers, and thus it's a case-by-case -case approach. As to the first Winston factor, or maybe a threshold of the factors, is whether the police had a warrant. And the answer is yes. The judge here made an informed, detached, and deliberate determination that probable cause existed that the drugs would be found inside Mr. Brown. But what does that have to do with the reasonableness of the invasion? I, I, I understand that they have to, the, the court has to analyze whether it was reasonable that there was probable cause that the drugs were inside Mr. Brown. But it seems like if the way I read Winston, they're saying that's kind of a threshold issue. Without that, we don't even get to the question because it's, you know, without the warrant, it would be presumptively unreasonable. It seems like the question in front of the court today is the reasonableness of the invasion. And the warrant, the judge issuing the warrant had no information about the reasonableness of this particular procedure, the need for it. So I don't understand why you think that that's a plus factor that favors the state instead of just being kind of a threshold issue and then we get to the actual analysis. It, it is a threshold issue, but there are cases that have addressed the Winston factors where there was no warrant. And for example, the case out of Iowa where there was a warrantless pumping of the defendant's stomach and they found that to be valid under the Winston factors. But the analysis of whether the Winston factors applied was different. I mean, that there was a question of whether an exigent circumstance situation applied there, right? Sure. That's the, that's the warrant issue. And then there's a separate in issue about the reasonableness of the invasion under these particular circumstances, right? It, it goes to the question both of the threshold question, I agree with you, and then we'll get into the, the separate factors after that. But it also goes to the probable cause finding and what had been observed up until this point of when the uh, warrant was executed. And up until that point, the police observed uh, from an informant, they set up a buy where they observed him making hand-to-hand -hand transactions. They approached him, he shoved his hands down his pants. They saw him rocking back and forth at the police station as the officer thought he was trying to jam narcotics. And I'm not contesting that. that there was probable cause here. I don't think, I don't know that anybody's suggesting that there wasn't probable cause here. The question is whether this particular invasion was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Correct, and this this all goes to the factors of whether this was reasonable. Did they think they would find drugs? And this, this distinguishes these facts and the fact that there was a warrant and it was supported by probable cause, and it's specifically in this case-by-case -case analysis what the police observed here distinguishes this case from United States versus Gray, where there it was an informant's tip. That's all that existed in that case. And in that situation, the defendant was subjected to multiple different procedures where each and every time they did not find drugs. There was an x-ray, there was a digital rectal exam, there was sedatives, and from, from the very, uh, from the x-ray and the digital exam, there was nothing found any time, but they continued to probe further. They continued to dig. And there was a, at least a question because that was based entirely on an informant's tip. Here, the police observed him shoving his hands up his pants. They did a strip search, which is not challenged here on appeal, which 
has dignitary interest concerns of a strip search, and they saw a baggie sticking out of his anus. There was no question that the police knew that there was something existing in his anus. Now, they didn't know what those drugs were. Uh, they weren't sure what that was at the time. The informant says he was selling crack cocaine, but they needed to confirm that. So this all goes to the police reasonable belief that the drugs would be found in his rectum. So it goes to the strength of the state's interest. It does. It, it goes into As opposed the to a, So this is like, it's a separate threshold factor and then the warrant is a piece of evidence that goes to the strength, strength of the state's interest. Correct, the warrant, the, the warrant is the threshold question before we get into these other factors, but then the strength of the warrant, the strength of the police observations before the warrant was executed goes to the reasonableness of this procedure. Counsel, do you agree with opposing counsel in terms of the state of the record on uh, Mr. Brown's medical condition? At the time that the warrant was executed, there was no emergency existed. Uh, I agree with that. That is the testimony. And there was also no evidence in the record that the evidence was going to dissipate in some specific period of time. In other words, it was the state didn't didn't argue or prove that, look, if we don't get this out within the next 30 minutes, it's all going to be gone. That, that was not a contention made. The doctor did testify, however, that, that he had no idea how tightly wrapped that was. If there was a twist tie, if it was just wrapped up, um, it was unclear. Why not, I mean, why not just wait? The, the waiting factor doesn't, there's, there's several issues with the waiting. Number one, um, it, it goes to a bright line rule that the appellant is advocating for today, that only the least intrusive procedure is reasonable. That is not the law under uh, the United States Supreme Court. And there's the Lafayette case, um, the Valentin case that both say, or excuse me, Veronia case, that both say uh, existence of a less intrusive means does not make a search unreasonable. The question is- But wasn't uh, Veronia factually different? Didn't that involve athletes who were supposed to, uh, was it um, taking um, urinalysis, for example? I mean, that's a very different facts situation. It, it is, but it doesn't change the law that only the least intrusive means is the reasonable search. Uh, Let's make the case here for why was Mr. Brown strapped down? Uh, yes. Okay. So why is it reasonable to strap somebody down, sedate them, and then take a medical device and stick it up their body? I mean, how is that? When there's no evidence that the person is in medical distress and there's no evidence that what the police are looking for is going to be gone if we don't go through, I mean, how is that reasonable? For several reasons. One, um, Mr. Brown continually refused to take any of the less intrusive means available. Now, the appellant has argued that Mr. Brown does not need to cooperate with the police. Fair, but that then takes down the reasonable options that are available to the doctor at the time to get the drugs out of his body. So that he refused to take it out himself, even when a baggie was sticking out of his anus. He refused to stop shoving it up his rectum. 
when the police instructed him to do so. He refused to take a laxative. These are taking away other reasonable options that were available to the doctor to get the drugs out of his body. The, the, in terms of just waiting, this bright line rule is against the Winston case-by-case -case approach. Uh, secondly, the... I guess I'm not advocating or I'm not arguing that we should have a bright line rule. I mean, the nature of the balancing itself means it's gonna be a case-by-case -case analysis. But, but what I really don't appreciate here is why when there's no evidence of medical emergency and no evidence that this evidence is gonna disappear, why, why it's reasonable to not wait in this particular case. So passing, it, waiting and going into a waterless toilet uh, is not, doesn't offer any more dignitary interest than that. You have to have a police officer standing and watching as he defecates into a waterless toilet. If you don't, there's nothing to stop the defendant from taking the drugs and shoving them right back up in there. Uh, number two, it's not practical. Having a police officer stand there and watch uh, it could take a long time. Within that, he's under, he's in custody at this point in time. And so at that point, the clock is ticking. He's got, we've got, the state has the burden of a 36 or a 48 hour rule that we need to charge him. And so then the, the bright line rule is, can he hold it long enough to wait out the 48 hours where we have to charge him? And if he can, he gets to go free. Could the state have charged this case um, without the plastic bag coming out? In other words, was there enough there to charge the case and hold the, hold the defendant for longer than 36 hours? I think, it's, I think that's a tough ch case to charge if you don't have the drugs. The defense on that, if you, if you let him go, the defense on that is, well, why, why wasn't I, I was scamming people. I had rock candy and I was selling people raw candy. This and counsel, if um, something were to happen to the defendant during that time, there was, it burst and there was an immediate crisis and they were unable to save him. Whose responsibility would that be? That is on the state and the police. And within that, there is testimony in this record of the doctor saying what happens with crack cocaine when an overdose is the muscles start to contract. And as the muscles contract, then they have to do emergency surgery uh, because you, they can't go in the way they did with this with an endoscopy. They have to go in with emergency surgery at that point to get it out. And, and to that point too, you have a police officer standing guard watching in a waterless toilet. This police officer doesn't have the medical training to know when an emergency is developing, when an overdose is, is starting to manifest at that point, uh, and to know when that surgery needs to take place. And so there too, even if an overdose starts to begin, that is on the police, that is on the state. Counsel, your, your brief kind of delicately deals with the question of the defendant's own obligation to choose a less intrusive means. And I, Winston, of course, is different. That's a case involving a bullet in someone's shoulder. He obviously didn't put the bullet in his shoulder. So. To, to what extent may we consider the defendant's actions or inaction, refusal to act, in deciding um, the three factors in Winston, or at least factors one and two? The, the defendant's actions are absolutely relevant to the considerations of all the Winston factors. 
first the actions that he put his privacy interests by jamming these narcotics into his rectum in front of the police officer. They watched him do this, so that is extremely relevant. His inaction and refusal to cooperate with any less intrusive means goes to what options are reasonable at the time, what's left for the doctor to choose. And at that point, a laxative is out, unless you're gonna force a laxative down his throat, and there's some real problems with that. Uh, the the uh, Him taking it out himself is out, because he's refused to do that. But even within that, he was refusing to answer the doctor's questions. The doctor said, here are your options. Wouldn't say anything. Gave him the options again, no response. So with the defendant not responding, it's even more difficult to determine when this medical emergency existed. Uh, the police officer standing there watching him not saying anything, sitting silent, it's hard to tell. And if he falls asleep, then who knows when this medical emergency is gonna exist. Uh, if he starts convulsing, that's a real problem. What's uh, the standard for the police or the state being responsible for his death? Is that a negligence case? It would be a 1983 action at that point. Uh, and it would be under a negligence claim. Uh, so, and what would, in a negligence claim, what would the impact of him refusing, making the choice not to cooperate? Wouldn't that undermine the 1983 claim? It could, but if he's dead, that's a big problem for the state. And you've got a wrongful death action with a 1983 claim uh, coming at the state and the county. Correct. There would be evidence that the person didn't consent. That is correct. That that cuts against it, but in making. But these there would also be evidence that the state could have taken other actions and chose not to. Correct, and that the they had it into the hospital, and that the doctor had all these options available, and they chose not to go in and get the drugs out. They didn't choose not to go in and get the drugs. Well, I guess they chose not to violate the person's constitutional rights, arguably, which would be a very interesting 1983 claim. Well. And I, I disagree with whether the constitutional rights were violated in the first place in, in this scenario, but yes, that is the, the 1983 claim that exists there. But in making these determinations, a police officer at the scene should not be concerned about thinking about, well, are we gonna be civilly liable here? Um, at the hearing, you, even, you can see in the record that the, second, the uh, first doctor, from North Memorial had an attorney show up with them because they were worried about being civilly liable. So a private attorney came and represented them at the Rasmussen uh, determination. Counsel, do you agree, um, uh, defense appellant's uh, counsel said um, that the nature of this crime uh, lessened factor number three, the community interest, that it was just fifth degree possession. How does that weigh here? And then also, um, how, do we consider at all that the state could have possibly charged him with with selling cocaine and could have avoided this whole this whole thing altogether? Uh, we don't know at the time that this was performed. It was completely unclear the amount of drugs that was in his rectum. It, it there was no evidence of that. There was even no record. Uh, with the doctor knowing how tightly wrapped those drugs were at that time. So it's, it's unclear what crime could have been charged at that point in time. Uh, as to the sale, without the drugs, this becomes an extremely circumstantial case. Uh, 
it's very unlikely that that would be charged given the ethical duties of prosecutors that you don't charge unless you believe you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Was, was there a, didn't the informant do a buy in this case or do I have, am I mixing that up with a different? The informant did do a buy uh, in terms of what happened to that informant or those drugs, the record is unclear. So we don't know if they actually had real, he sold him real drugs? Correct. Counsel, let's talk about the good faith exception. Yes. Uh, my position on the good faith exception was articulated in a dissent in the Lindquist case. I didn't think it was necessary to recognize such, such an exception, but you're advocating for an extension of the Lindquist good faith exception, right? I am. All right. And uh, the exception, as I understand it, is a reliance on a valid warrant? Correct. But Winston assumed the existence of a warrant, didn't it? Winston ex assumed the existence of a warrant in that case, correct? Sure, so the, the question isn't whether the police relied on a valid warrant, warrant, the question is whether even despite the valid warrant, the search was reasonable. Correct. And Winston does not create controlling law on the reasonableness of the search. It's a, it's a totality of the circumstances analysis, isn't, isn't it? The Winston factor? Yes. yes. So why should relying on a valid warrant get you into the safety of the good faith exception when there's the additional Winston analysis? For a few reasons. Um, one, this is completely under uh, the, the argument and the relief sought throughout this entire case has been under the Fourth Amendment. And under the United States Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, the good faith exception exists. And well, has the Supreme Court created a good faith exception for not, for, um, not following the Winston factors? Uh, well, the, the best case for that is the Massachusetts versus Shepard case, which came out around the same time um, as the Leon case. And in that situation, um, the state Supreme Court ruled that an undisputed constantly, uh, constitutionally defective warrant required exclusion of that evidence. And that was what the state Supreme Court ruled in that case. And this, this also goes to the Yeah, but the point remedy. is nobody's, I mean, I, nobody's saying the warrant itself was defective. They're saying once you get past the warrant, the Winston factors um, make the search unreasonable. So how can relying on a, a valid warrant get you into the, the safety of an, this additional good faith exception? Given the, the totality of the circumstances and the probable cause that existed in there, uh, and under the United States Supreme Court precedent, uh, that gets us into the good faith exception relying on a valid warrant. Um, in, in the Massachusetts versus Shepard case, the good faith exception applied even though the state Supreme Court ruled no, this needs to be excluded. So this goes to both the reliance on a warrant and also on the um, state law remedy that the appellant has advocated for. It's important too to look at, um, if I can back up to the Winston factors, the second factor of the Winston factors, the Supreme Council, I just, I, I'm sorry, I just have to interrupt you for a minute and go back to the good faith exception. I think in the reply brief, um, the appellant suggests that the state did not press the good faith exception at the district court. And so we should conclude that the state has, I guess, waived or forfeited the good faith exception argument. How do you respond? Uh, the court can consider that for a se several reasons. One, under the Grunig case, uh, this court's precedent, respondent can raise alternative grounds to affirm if it does not expand the relief in the record. So appellant's correct that you did not raise, the, that the state did not raise the good faith exception in the district court? The district court, it was not raised. That is correct. 
but under Grunig and under uh, Rule 2904 Subdivision 6, the respondent can raise alternative reasons for affirmance, and that, that would be the reason um, that that is before the court. But uh, Pellin is correct, was not raised at this. Well, the problem is, isn't the district court in the best position to determine what happened in good faith and what happened in bad faith, being able to observe the witnesses? Sure, yeah, the district court would be in the best uh, position at that point in time, what happened in good faith or bad faith. Uh, so there's good, if, good reason to think that if the state doesn't raise the good faith exception in the district court, then it's forfeited the argument. Not under Grunig or Rule 2904, uh, for the reasons that the record doesn't need expansion here. There are no findings about whether it, the police- Yeah, but it's only a paper case. record. I mean, the district court has the chance to observe the credibility of the officers and decide were they acting in good faith or not. We don't, we don't have that opportunity, do we? You don't, but you do have the paper record, and the paper record doesn't need expansion for several reasons. One, because the court found the warrant to be valid. Two, because the court found this procedure to be valid. By finding the procedure to be valid, implicitly within that is that the police acted in reasonable reliance on that warrant and bringing it to a hospital and having a doctor execute it. So the record doesn't need expanding in order to find the good faith exception. But under the Winston factor two, the United States Supreme Court declared this a crucial factor in the analysis. And, and the crucial factor is, what is the threat to Mr. Brown's safety and health? And the record here is unrefuted that an anoscopy posed minimal threat to Brown's safety or health. health. It's a common procedure. It takes a few minutes and can be performed without sedation if the uh, patient is cooperating. Cases addressing similar procedures have found it's not a significant risk. Brown offered no evidence to the contrary to show that it posed any risk to his health and safety. Um, along the factor three of the privacy and bodily integrity, that is the thrux of the appellant's argument in this entire case, is that factor three favors them. And the appellant has argued it favors them so overwhelmingly that and, and it argues within every other factor that factor three needs to be considered. The state has conceded that factor three does favor Brown, but given the totality of the circumstances, that pendulum swings back a bit more towards the center. The, the threat to Brown's safety, although minimal, there's still a threat there, right? The threat to his safety in terms By of By performing the procedure? The procedure there, there I mean, that would weigh, if, I mean, even if it's slight, that would still weigh in his favor because I, there I is a threat, the, right? When you look at that, it's the extent of the threat. And so there is a minimal threat to his health or safety in this circumstance based on the record that we have here. There, the, it's a commonly performed procedure that maybe there could be a tearing or something like that could happen, but that's the case with most medical procedures. You're, you're figuring out the extent of the threat. And so here it's minimal, and therefore it is weighing in the state's favor. Um, the factor three on the uh, bodily integrity, again, the state concedes this factor, but the pendulum swings back a bit towards the center for several reasons. One, the strip search was not challenged, where the police did observe a baggie sticking out of his anus. Two, uh, the factor favors um, the Brown put his interests at issue when he, in front of plain view of the police officers, jammed the narcotics 
uh, and four, Brown offered no uh, cooperation, which then again limits the doctor's available options. And the testimony here is the doctor chose the safest option available to him at the time in order to uh, safely remove the drugs within his ethical duty. On balance, the Winston factors favor the state. Uh, again, the infringement on the integrity and bodily interests slightly favors Brown, but the other factors all favors the state. Uh, there was a warrant. The crucial factor showed there was minimal threat to Brown's health and safety, and the community has a strong interest in prosecuting uh, the crimes. Unless the court has any other questions, we ask that this, uh, this court affirm. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Ms. Workman, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Your Honors, there are two things that I want to address here on rebuttal. First being what Mr. Brown could have been charged with, and second being the uh, what I call the first factor of the Winston factors, and that would be uh, what Mr. Schmidt is calling the second factor. That would be the extent to which the procedure risks his safety. Regarding what Mr. Brown could have been charged with here, the state had ample evidence, circumstantial evidence of a sale. The officers watched two transactions, one with the informant and one in front of a store with someone else. The state could have charged him with fourth degree sale. That charge does not require a weight or an amount of drug to be introduced as evidence in order for the for that to be uh, proven. Don't you need to show that it actually was an illegal drug? Your Honor, it, that, there is, that can be circumstantially proven, Your Honor, through the circumstances here of the furtiveness of the sale, the way that the sale was conducted, that kind of thing can be proven, yes. Regarding and, uh, that. And what is, how does the informant buying the drugs play into whether they knew that they he was selling drugs. It appears, and it especially is clear from the complaint in this case, Your Honor, that the informant came back after the sale and turned over some um, uh, contraband to them. Uh, whether that was money or whether that was drugs, it's unsure. Whether this, the police wanted to quote unquote burn their informant and, and uh, charge that crime, it's unsure, but they still had circumstantial evidence of another sale that occurred. So I'm, I'm, so, I'm just, I'm sorry, I don't want to take up much of your time, but so was the informant buying drugs or selling drugs? It seems that the informant was buying from Mr. Brown, but again, it says contraband in, in the uh, complaint. And, and just, just to make the point that um, that goes to the community interest, is that your argument? That's our argument, Your Honor. <laughs> Regarding that first factor, Your Honors, any risk to Mr. Brown's health was too much here. The risk that he faced from the anoscopy and which he did suffer was bleeding and tearing. That is too much. It's too much to put somebody in the position where they're going to suffer discomfort, sedation, bleeding and tearing because the police don't want to wait. That's too much. What, what's the evidence of bleeding and tearing? The. Uh, Evidence was in, on cross-examination, the uh, defense counsel asked the uh, second doctor, would it surprise you, because the second doctor said, well, this is sort of a regular procedure, not 
too high of risks, and the and he said the risks were bleeding and tearing. The uh, defense counsel asked, well, would it surprise you to learn then that Mr. Brown did suffer bleeding and tearing the next day? And he would say, yes, that would surprise me. That's, that's our evidence right there. Well, there is no evidence. It was a hypothetical question. I think question. we can conclude from that that he did suffer it. It's a hypothetical question. Regar right? Regardless, Your Honor, the fact that their risk was present is too much. And that's what we're looking at here for the first But counsel, there. there's a difference between a risk and whether it actually happened or not. And again, I don't think we can presume based on what you just told me was the interchange that that actually happened because I agree with Justice Anderson that it certainly could have been a hypothetical. I agree with you that it doesn't minimize what could happen, um, but I think that we need to be clear on. <laughs> then, then focusing, if that's your, what we believe then, Your Honor, then focusing just on the risk that it could have occurred the risk itself is just too much. Are there any other questions? Uh, counsel, your state constitutional argument? Yes, yeah. I'm having a little trouble figuring it out. Okay. Um, are you saying that the Winston case is a departure or a retrenchment from privacy rights? No, Your Honor. The, this court can work the Winston factors in and adopt the Winston factors as part of a state constitutional argument, I'd have no problem with that, and I would advocate for that. But so you're, you're, not, you're not saying we need to provide greater protection in the Minnesota Constitution by way of our case law than Winston does? The, Winston does an adequate job, Your Honors, but I want to remind Your Honors that as part of a state constitutional analysis that this court um, performs, you also look at the fundamental fairness and that comes from the Danforth II case when it was remanded back from the uh, Supreme Court. And when you're looking at this case, not only are you considering the Winston factors for state constitutional purposes, you are also considering whether this was fundamentally fair. But th and I this is not like the McMurray case where you had Supreme Court precedent that was uh, alleged not to protect, uh, adequately protect privacy. We're not in okay, that situation. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Thanks to both Counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.